You're listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get to this week's guest, a former member of the 75th Ranger Regiment, multiple deployments overseas, now owns uh, or is a co-owner of one of his own companies on leadership. We'll get to him coming up in just a few moments. But our normal few announcements as we start off the show. And these are reminders because, well, you guys aren't doing your job. I say that kiddingly, but I say it meaningfully in that we need you guys to continue to follow some of the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground, at Hazard Ground Podcast as well. Go to our website, hazardground.com, and, and click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or under the Sponsors tab. Why? Because if you're an Amazon shopper and you go to hazardground.com first and you use our link, We'll get a percentage of whatever you guys spend. I know back to school is coming up. People are buying stuff for their kids. If you're going to do it on Amazon and go to hazardground.com first, we get a percentage of what you spend. And then we donate a percentage of that back to some of the great charities and organizations you've heard featured here on the show. So it's an easy way to help out veterans organizations just by doing your normal Amazon shopping. Works as well from your smartphone. Uh, This way, if you have all your credit card information saved and everything, it redirects you to the app. It's really simple and convenient. But go to hazardground.com. Dot com first and click on the Amazon button. Uh, please continue to leave us Apple reviews. Uh, I, I love g- getting them from you guys. Every time one pops up, I get an email, puts a smile on my face because you guys genuinely do love this show and we appreciate that. But the more Apple reviews we get, the more we grow, the more people that hear this podcast and share all these amazing stories uh, of, of American service members and what they are doing. And then, of course, finally, um, please continue uh, to give us a shout at producer at hazardground.com. Let us know what you think about the show and guest suggestions. We take them there as well. All of that stuff uh, continues to help us grow. So uh, continue to send us feedback and email through our website and producer at hazardground.com. All right, let's welcome this week's guest who spent over 24 years in the military, retired as a lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Army, deployed eight times in support of the global war on terror, including with the 75th Ranger Measurement and Joint Special Operations Command. And he actually finished his career with the Old Guard at Arlington National Cemetery. Don't need to tell you what that's all about. He now has uh, is currently the CEO and co-owner of a company called LDR Leadership, which specializes in performance management and leadership training. He is Dave Taylor Work joining us here on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Dave, welcome, and thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks, Mark. Appreciate you having me. Looking forward to it. Yeah, I mean, listen, um, the the connection between you and I came through actually Tony Main, uh, who is a Ranger for Life here, a former guest of ours, but Tony is uh, down in the Fort Benning area, uh, and he's, he's a great colleague and a great friend, and uh, the, the Rangers, you guys still run tight together, even all your, all your post-years, so... Uh, the community. It is, gets well- I, 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 love, I love seeing the, the Ranger for Life program. It's uh, it's it's well needed, and we're really glad to see them kicking that thing off. So I'm excited to be a part of that as well. It's uh, it's good to see us taking care of each other. No, absolutely. And, and again, it's a it's it's a widespread net. You know, despite the fact that the Rangers are a pretty elite force, and it was a small number of you, comparatively speaking, you guys are everywhere. So uh, it's great to see that everybody is sticking together. Uh, a, a, an amazing career, and I. I, I I want to talk to you about LDR leadership because there's something very interesting about the leadership business because it's become a business in the post-war on, you know, post-global war on terror field. Um, and, and in some places it's, it, you know, I don't want to dive too deep into this now, but in some cases 
I think that there are a lot of people sort of co-opting their military experience and trying to flip it into um, monetary rewards in public speaking and everything else, which I don't necessarily mind. I think it's a bad thing. Um, but I certainly think that there's a way to do this that benefits people, and there's a way to do it that has more self-interest and self-benefit than necessarily a holistic picture. So the leadership business is now, like the, the leadership industry is now a thing. Yeah, it, it certainly is. And, uh, you know, I kind of fell into it by, by chance, uh, you know, when I, once I retired and, and fell into it. And we look at it, uh, you know, I've got multiple instructors. I've got about nine instructors, and not all of them have military experience. And our program's not even, it's not founded on military, a military aspect. Because at a certain point, right, at a certain point, your military experience is good. But when you get out in front of somebody, you got to bring more to the table than sure. this is what yeah. I did in the, in the military. Which is one of the reasons I went back to school as well. So we could take, you know, there's the art and science of leadership, right? You have the art, but then really what we wanted to focus on was what is the science and the research behind it? And how can we apply all that evidence-based leadership training and provided to supervisors and managers across the country that that need that, right? You get you get promoted because mm-hmm. you're technically competent, but then we forget to fill that gap on how do you manage people, and that's just a different that's just a different trait and a different tool. Yeah, and I did neglect to mention that you do have a master's degree in leadership from Georgetown University. Hell, I have a master's in organizational leadership. So not only is it a thing, it's actually a career field uh, these days that you can actually you know take in college and everything else. But uh, we talk about the military experience. Start back at the beginning for you and how you got in the army. Yeah, so I was uh, I was a product of be all you can be, right? Same here. Growing up, yeah, yeah. Growing up, you know, I still think it's one of the greatest commercials, right? Because everybody it still is. remembers be all you can be. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the little brochures that you'd see, you know, these little brochures at every every place you'd run around. And um, yeah, I mean, ever since I was a kid, if you ask my if you ask my mom, I think probably when I was around eleven. You know, I was running around with my M16 BB gun in the woods, you know, shooting, maybe or maybe not shooting my house, shooting neighbors' houses. And, uh, you know, I was just, there was just something that always called to me. My uncle, uh, James Randall Taylor uh, Jr., was killed in Vietnam. So I was said, you know, I never met him. I wasn't a product of a military family. My grandfather was in the Air Force. It was just something that called to me. I, I enlisted in 90, I guess, 91 of my high school year, end of my high school year. Uh, enlisted in the Maryland Reserve as an MP. Little known secret that I just let out. Uh, did not let too many people know. I was a military policeman to start off with. Uh, so my parents did not. They're like, hey, you can go in the reserves and then go to college. And then if you want to do whatever you want to do after college, go to college, uh, which is great. So I went to West Virginia University and then transferred over to the Pennsylvania Army National Guard into the infantry. And had, you know, if you're interested, I had my typical, I'm going to be a bonehead, watch too many movie platoon type things that learn my lesson quick. And then I got commissioned. I was in uh, my senior year in college. I was down at Gold's Gym working out and the professor of military science saw my short haircut. I was getting ready to put an OCS packet in. And he, uh, you know, Colonel Doug Floor wrote me into uh, ROTC at West Virginia University. And I, you know, I got commissioned out of, uh, out of there in 97. Yeah. Um, it was BLU can be get an edge on life in the army. You got an edge on life at West Virginia because, uh, what I know of WBU in Morgantown, um, the edge is on partying and the, and the, and the rest is, uh, uh, is left to left to the gods to decide. Yeah. They just get such a, you know, unfortunately <laughs> is as good as the school is that they just cannot shake as much as they've tried to shake. It, I, no, they haven't tried shake. to shake it. Don't lie to people. I, I, yes, I have plenty of WVU alums. And to this day, they're all 20 years out of college, and all they talk about is, man, we're party viewers. It's great. Well, you know, and my son goes there now. So needless to say, 
football weekends are uh, are a blast in the fall yeah. now. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, they, listen, they're 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 relevant and they're good. But yeah, listen, th- there's not really much in war- in West Virginia other than Morgantown and Wheeling. So you picked one of the two uh, cities that actually had something to offer. Yes. Yeah. I, I love it. I mean, most people actually think I'm from West Virginia than Maryland. Uh, I got a Maryland tag, but I got the West Virginia alumni stuff. And, you know, mm-hmm. when I was deployed, I always had a West Virginia flag everywhere. And, uh, you know, that's, uh, you know, yeah. the well, flying WV trend, you know, it goes everywhere with me. It's, it's not hard to figure out that uh, you went from a school that runs deep and runs tight and runs everywhere to an organization in the Ranger Regiment that runs deep and runs tight and runs everywhere. So yeah. at least you're consistent from that standpoint. That's right. You know, and I grew up in Annapolis, so you know, I definitely didn't want anything to do with the Navy. No, absolutely not. Um, so you go to you go to infantry IOBC back in the day. Um, did you know you wanted to be a Ranger from the, from the jump when you got into the infantry? I did. I mean, I, I knew from the brochures, right? Because the bro- the BLUB brochures had like Ranger Special Forces. Green Beret, Airborne, and there was just something about uh, being a Ranger I always wanted. I wanted it from the time I was in uh, ROTC. Were you the kind of guy who did a lot of research on Ranger School and how to get through it and everything else? I probably did, um, but I think it's one of those, you know, I, I listened to my instructors. You know, I still think one of the best things I did was by the fact that I at least went through basic. I had a, a larger understanding by the time I went through ROTC, and I talked to some folks that had been through it. So, again, I don't know if it's one of those – you can prepare for it other than just prepare for it to suck. Right. And if you have that mindset that it's going to suck and it's, uh, you know, as long as you don't quit, you'll be fine. Uh, you know, I don't know that I did anything special to train for it other than, you know, the, the physical fitness aspect and trying to mentally prepare myself for what was about to come. I mean, I still blame Ranger school for the fact that I, you know, I eat my food in like five seconds. Well, that's probably basic training and Ranger school. Right. So, yeah. Uh, you know, try being a single guy going out on the date mark, right? And you're like, the food's in front of my face. And I just want to shovel it in. I'm like, all right, take a breath, take a breath. I I, I never resisted that urge. And similarly to you, uh, I have a big Italian family uh, and, and basic training to thank for the fact that I still scarf down my food. And honestly, when I was single back in the day uh, and going on a ton of dates, you know, I always eliminated that by eating a meal before the date. So I wasn't like famished by the time that I got there. So I had okay, one meal that's home a good technique. and then I'm went like, out. You know, and this way, oh yes, I'll just have an appetizer. Everything will be fine. You know, I you, might steal it from you. You, you look all dainty uh, when when all you order is a salad and and, and you know some uh, so, some some little uh, you know little cream puff uh, appetizers. But anyway, so we digress from uh, dating philosophy one on one. Anyway, um, so you know when you, when you get through uh, IOBC, do you immediately go to Ranger School, or are you one of those people who went to your unit first and then went back? Yeah, I went to my unit first. So okay. I went to 1st Battalion, 187, uh, 101st out in Fort Campbell. All right. So went right there and then was fortunate. I think I spent the 18 or 19 months. So I got to 101st and I think it was, I guess it had been the end of 2007 or maybe the first part of, I'm sorry, 2007, uh, 97. Um, 97 or 98 and then got to 3rd uh, Battalion in 99. So, all right, you're, you're in a pre-9-11 world. Um, and you're in the army and you said this is something that you, you knew you always wanted to do. Did it live up to the billing, uh, of, of being all you could be prior to nine 11? You talking the the army, the, ar- large? No, the army, the army in general. Like I know you, you had like a bigger plan. You were heading to ranger school and that's something you wanted to accomplish. But I, from my own active duty experience, and this is one of the reasons I got off active duty, um, because I felt like I was oversold something like be all you can be. I'm like, yeah, Fort Hood sucks. I, I can't be anything here. 
other than a, a New Yorker sticking out like a sore thumb. That's all I can be. Uh, and well, I, we didn't go anywhere. We didn't do anything. I mean, yeah, we went to the field, but it's like, I, I thought I was going to be all I can be. Right now, I'm just, you know, an, a, an angry second lieutenant, you know, just waiting for something exciting to happen. Well, I think there's there's two kind of two aspects that I looked at is that my very first commander in first sergeant almost had me leave the army. I mean, they were they were horrible. Uh, they were they were not wow. good. Uh, they were not good. The commander didn't listen to, to anybody. The, the the first sergeant was spent more time washing his truck, um, you know, in the back. And I was like, is this is, is this what I'm going to expect? Fortunately, my very you know the next unit, the next platoon I went to. Uh, I had a great commander, great first sergeant, kind of changed the dynamic. I was like, ah, okay, that's what I wanted. That's the leadership I was looking for in the Army. But you're right, like, our our air assaults were truck assaults. I think the entire time I was at the 101st, we did maybe one air assault. We did a truck assault. Uh, but, you know, I wasn't I wasn't disappointed because I still had a goal, right? right I still had right. a goal of, of getting a range regiment. I still enjoyed being an infantry officer. Uh, I was married at that time. Uh, so... Yeah, I, I still felt I still thought I was on the the right path uh, for what I was looking for. I, I always go back to that second commander and first sergeant. If their leadership wasn't the way it was, you know how how would my life had you know changed? Because I I might have left the military after my first experience. It, it's funny um, when you talk about your first commander. It jars my memory of my first commander on active duty. <laughs> And look, full disclosure, look, I was an arrogant prick as a lieutenant. Like, it, I, I've told this a million times on this show. If I could go back and do anything, if I have any regrets about my military career, I would have gone and been a better lieutenant. Um, I absolutely would have. I would have embraced a lot more things. I would have I would have been a lot more open to things. Uh, as it was, again, I, I was stuck in a place I didn't want to go at Fort Hood. Uh, and this wasn't something at the time I had visions on doing for 23 years like I do now. Um, and I didn't have respect for the job that I had um, until after I deployed. And that said... You know, I, I remember my first commander, like, I look back, I'm like, what a putz. Like, I, it, it's weird because, you know, somebody said to me, the only two cool ranks in the Army are captain and colonel, right? And and that's just because of, you know, a little bit we talked before we were recording, like, the, the, the things you can put your hands on in as an 06 and truly affect are pretty amazing when you think about it. But it's the same as a captain. The amount of people you can have a direct impact on as a company commander is so large, and the responsibility is so awesome, and there's nothing like it. Um that that impression that you make on new lieutenants and new soldiers, I, I don't know if a lot of commanders, or at least back then, prior to the war on terror, really grasped and really understood the relationship that they were creating from day one. No, I, I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, if I even backtrack to when I was in uh, the reserve, I, don't, I think it was in the reserves. It was the Guard Reserve that time because I switched <laughs> You know, I wish I knew this guy's name. He was a second lieutenant, and we were all out on the field. I was probably a PFC, and we were breaking down, you know, we're breaking down GP mediums. I, I specifically remember it. And, you know, all of the, the privates were breaking stuff down. All the enlisted guys were breaking stuff down. And this young second lieutenant, I say young, he was obviously older than me, but, you know, now he looks young to me. Small, small guy, right? Like, I, he wasn't a big wasn't a big guy or anything, but we're all folding these GP mediums up, and every, all the other, you know, all the officers are kind of standing around watching. And he came over and was folding up the GP medium with us, and said, you know, we were talking. He said something like, "Yeah, I'm, I'm no better than you guys. I'm just, I'm just wearing a, a bar." And that that kid, that guy at the time, was a massive influence. And you know, at that point, I said, if I'm ever going to be an officer, 
I'm going to remember that because that impact he had, I was like, that's, that's the kind of guy I like right there. You know, I'll follow that officer. Cause he, he wasn't afraid to get down and he made a huge impact uh, on me on at least kind of how I wanted to be or try to emulate as best I could uh, yeah. throughout. But I, I think you're right. The, the impact is, is powerful. I, I want to ask you just, you know, in retrospect, looking back on it, you know, having those bad leadership experiences, is that, you know, does that go into later on in life, you know, your decision to go to LDR and work in the leadership field? I mean, all that stuff, is it is it cumulative for you? It is, right? So when, you know, we're out training with our program and we're talking to leaders that, you know, from the employees up to the C-suite or boards, you know, we can use all of our experiences and we like to use our, you know, not only experiences that we saw that weren't good, but our own mistakes because we all make mistakes, um, so we like to share them because we can, you know, our, our goal is when we're teaching something or we're talking about communication or emotional intelligence, high performing teams or standards like, hey, look, here's some errors where I made. Here's errors where we've seen. Here's some good things. All that ties in. Right. It, it transcends. It's just how do you deliver it and how do you make it relate to somebody so they can see it from their their optic and their perspective. Yeah, I mean, again, I, I think uh, we, we draw on so many experiences throughout our career. Sometimes we don't even realize uh, how they impact us. Uh, but for you now, it's it's on to Ranger School. So you leave the 101st and you, and you go to Ranger School. Yeah. This, for you, is, you know, this is the top of the mountain. You're, all i got to do is climb this, and you are at Nirvana. So what are you thinking going yeah. into this whole thing? Yeah, it is. It's like, man, I better not screw this up, because if <laughs> I screw this up, that's done, right? Like, you know, it, I, I, at that point, if you're an infantry officer and you can go to Ranger School, I mean, and you didn't pass – Man, you just a you just a chump, right? So like all the pressure's on at that point. Like you want to show up, you at least show up with some bald wings and a ranger tab to your to your unit. And man, I was yeah, I was scared. I was scared. I mean, it was like I you know head down, don't be noticed. You know, just do your job. I mean, I remember you know I lost like twenty one pounds. Yeah. Um, you know, at the time, my girlfriend though one of the things that got me through my girlfriend and future wife. You know, I got a letter from her literally every day. Well, wow. you know, whenever we got whenever we got mail, right? But it, everyone was numbered, right? So I could see the order and read them in order that uh, you know that she sent them. Uh, but it was just—I mean, it was that was like the first, like, okay, here you go, you're you're now in it, and you know, God, just don't screw it up, right? Yeah. And I, you know, I was true blue through like winter phase or uh, Florida, I mean, right. and it just—I mean. Then just shit went haywire, uh, you know. <laughs> and I, I, I did have one of those key key moments in Ranger School where this was my next question. Up, <laughs> yeah, go ahead, go ahead. The next one, like your first big leadership or your first big lesson, you know, your first big mistake that you you learned from in Ranger School was what? Yeah, so you know the the thing I remember most, right? We were in uh, we were in Delon again. It was cold as hell in yeah. October, and maybe October it's not cold normally but when you haven't eaten and you're got no food and snivel gear and you're also about you know 600 700 feet above sea level wherever it is in Dahlonega yeah it was freezing I just know it was freezing to the point where they allowed us to have you know a beanie cap on we could put a uh, snivel bottom and tops on and you know only when our eyes told you that and then we went down to Florida and when we got to Florida it was still cold and the 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 directive on what to wear or not wear was not really clear. So I still had warm weather bottoms on, right? And you, I mean, been in ranger school, you know, unless you don't have snivel gear on, unless they tell you. 
And I remember we got up, the sun had come up. So it started to get a little warm. And I got up and I started walking out. We're going on patrol. And then I goes, hey, Ranger, you okay? I'm like, Roger, Sergeant. And he's like, are you wearing snow gear? And it was like that fleeting moment where I'm like, holy shit, this can go one or two ways. Right. If right. I say no, he's going to check. And then I'm done. Right? Because I'm not supposed to have snowball gear on. If I say yes, I'm screwed. So I'm like, holy crap. And I was like, well, well yeah, Roger. I just tried to play it off as like nonchalant. I was like, well, of course I got it on. And then he stopped, brought the entire platoon back, made us all strip. Thankfully, Mark, of the 26 or 27 that were in the platoon still, there was like 22 other rangers that had snowball gear what a what a relief as everyone's stripping you must have been your heart must have been pounding and then one by one you're like okay he's got oh wait wait, (laughs) exactly like i thought i was done i was like that's it i'm done my life's over my career's over i still remember it was uh ranger instructor carter i remember he Mm -hmm. wanted to like dx us all right so i remember him for two things one he wanted to dx us all and when we were finally finished Florida phase, he was singing Life's Been Good by Joe Walsh. And uh, so anytime I hear that song, I think of that guy, you know, that ranger instructor walking down the road thinking, man, he also wanted to get rid of us. Good ranger instructor. But, you know, those those moments you remember of, you know, it's kind of one of those, hey, the, you know, the lesson of being a you, you got a split second. Just better to be honest than than try to, to lie, because if you lie now, you're going to be. Yep. You know, uh, DX for for you know integrity violation. What did they say all. to the entire platoon? Oh, they hammered us right, and we end all we all end up getting like a major minus. Like everybody got like a major minus. But at least you weren't alone. That's right. At least I wasn't alone, and I didn't rat anybody out. I was like, well, yeah, of course I got snow gear on, right? I mean, I got them on. And then he would just brought them all back in. We all got major minuses, and you know, I went from true blue to like, holy crap! I don't know if I'm going to get through Florida phase here. Um, and I threw up a lot, right? Because every break we got the food packages, and I would eat it all. And every break, every break, I threw up between between Ranger School wow. uh, classes. Did you end up getting recycled? Or you made it all the way through first shot. No, um, I made it all the way through. Wow, that's unreal. I made it all the way through. It was. I mean, uh, it, it's not like being. I only ask, and for those who haven't been to Ranger School, listening or civilians, like you know, getting recycled, you get injured or whatever. They don't kick you out. They just make you wait until you're 100 percent clear and send you back in with the next class. Um, and being recycled isn't a shame, but it's just, you know, a lot of guys, it happens to, they get hurt, they get injured or whatever, or they fail a block of instruction, whatever, and they have to go repeat it. And so it's not uncommon, but to do it, there's not a lot of guys who, who make it in one shot without a recycle. Yeah, it's, it was, I mean, I was, I was thankful, right? And you, until you're, until you're told, like the biggest fear is like, you go all the way through to Florida and they're like, Hey, we're going to give you a day one recycle. And you're like, holy crap, like now, you know, because the mental aspect of can you imagine just having to do the entire thing over again? Uh, so it was it was big. It was like a big, you know, it still remains a, you know, really proud accomplishment because you do walk out of there just feeling confident about yourself and, you know, what you can endure, uh, you know, what the human body can endure uh, as well. Yeah, uh, uh, my uh, my first uh, awakening in the Army, uh, I'll never forget this and it. Similar to your story, and I'll, I'll condense it here real quick. I did my first ever sticks lane while in ROTC, and uh, we were we were doing you know drills, whether it was an ambush, a react to contact, a recon, whatever it was. Uh, and I, I forget even what the nature of the mission was, but I was the squad leader at the time, and uh, 
I still chuckle at this to this day. It's me, you know, and, and seven other guys were going out um, and, and patrolling through the woods. And then a pop shot happens and everybody gets down. And I have the, the sticks instructor, the sticks lane manager sitting next to me. You know, he's like, all right, squad leader, what are you going to do? And then I start making these calls to try to move people up online. And then, boom, another pop shot goes off. He's like, okay, he's injured. I'm like, okay, we'll get the aid and litter team. Go over there, get him. So I call the aid and litter team. And then the aid and litter team, boom, boom, they just got shot. I'm like, okay, we'll move these guys up online. He's like, boom, he just got injured. I'm like, secondary aid and litter team. And eventually, after like four or five guys went down, he looked at me and said, hey, stupid. Are you going to keep sending your guys up there to get shot? Are you actually going to realize that you need to break contact and get out of here? I went, oh, I thought I was just trying to get to the end. So... You know, I I, uh, I got laughed at by by all my classmates in ROTC. I'm like, yeah, I pretty much botched that one, so I, I never made that mistake again. Uh, yeah. Certainly not in combat. Thank God, I understood when to break contact and get the hell to get, get the hell to dodge. Uh, <laughs> no one cut your losses. Thank God it was just blanks. Uh, anyway, but it was uh, it, it, those are the hard lessons, right? You never forget those things, and they stay with you throughout your t- your entire career. So when you get that that Ranger tab put on you and, and you're leaving, and you're, I know you got a smile as as you know as big as the sun. Um, do you kind of get a sense? And this is what year, by the way, when you finished Ranger School? Uh, it would have been the fall of '97. Okay, fall of '97. So you, you head you head off the Ranger Regiment. Do you know what you're getting into at this point with the Ranger Regiment? Well, not yet, right? So from Ranger School, I go to the 101st, then I go to Ranger Regiment. Okay, so you went back to the 101st. Got it. Yeah. Okay. So before I even got to the 101st, I went to OBC. Infantry off at basic course, Ranger School, then the hundred and first. Gotcha. I'm sorry. I thought before when I asked you if you went to the unit first, uh, you had said that you went to. Yeah, unit. yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. Yeah, so. It's all good. So um, a- after one hundred and first, did you want to go to the Ranger Regiment? Did you ask to go there, or is that just sort of like because you're tab now? At some point, you're going to end up there. No, I wanted to go there, right? So okay. your battalion commander had a the sign off. Regimental commander had a sign off uh, for you to go. So it's the same thing, you know, there's an assessment selection process. So you send your packet in, go down, do do the evaluation, the assessment, and then go to the board. And then they, you know, they select you or they don't select you. Gotcha. Uh, so I'll fast forward a little bit, but you're in the Ranger Regiment until uh, uh, up until 9-11, right? Yes, I okay. went to school right before it. Oh, really? Yes, I went to Infantry Captain's Career Course. I think it was June or July of 2001. So and that's course, where you were, obviously, when 9-11 happened. Yes. And, of course, I was pissed, right? Because on my birthday, the Rangers jumped into Afghanistan. And I thought, man, you know, like, I was trying to figure out, can I go back? Do I have to go to school right now, you know, at the time? Because you all knew, everybody knew, after 9-11, if anybody was going somewhere, like, Rangers were at least going to go somewhere. Right. And I thought, you know, I thought, um, man, I thought I, I thought I missed it. Right, I thought I, I missed the uh, the opportunity. Little, well, little did I know, and I remember. Uh, yeah, I'll never not chuckle when I have people on this show and they say that. I thought I was going to miss the war. Yeah, a lot of us thought we were all going to miss the war. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right, I remember specifically uh, good buddies of mine, Dan uh, Dan Ferris and Ryan McCarthy were. You know, they were there. They came back, and Ryan, you know, Ryan was supposed like, Dave, don't worry, like you're gonna you're gonna get your shot. Like, of course, like all like you said, little little did I know. Or little did anybody know we'd get our shot and then our shot and then our shot and then our right. shot. So eight eight total deployments. When is your first one? Uh first one is the invasion of uh, Iraq. Well, so yeah, so at that okay. point I was with third ID. So after third battalion went to third brigade, third ID, uh, mm-hmm. it was then Colonel Dan Allen, who was my battalion commander in third ranger battalion. Oh wow. Okay. And, uh, yeah, so you're part of the initial of- assault force with three ID. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So in two thousand two we were in Kuwait. 
came back and we kind of knew, right? We kind of knew we were coming back because instead of putting all our, our vehicles back down to port, we just put them in the, the fobs out in the desert. So we kind of knew we were coming back. Right. And, you know, I guess we, we deployed back for a little bit, maybe a month or two months and went back in January. Of 03. Uh, of 03. What, yeah, when you get back there, like, what are they, what are you, he- take me through the, what you're hearing and what the, you know, I guess lead up, I mean, obviously, you know, you're invading and, and, you know, simply you have to go take the, the city, right? I mean, this is both symbolic and militarily and tactic, tactically, you know, what, what happens. Um, but like you, at this age, are you able to understand and comprehend like the nature of the assignment and, and the impact of it? I, I think so. Right. I mean, we're all still kind of young at that point. I mean, that was 2003. So I guess, I mean, you make, that's public math. I guess I was almost 30 or I was 30. Uh, mm-hmm. Something like that, thirty-one. Don't hold me to it. Um, so I, I think so, right? But it, but it's still kind of surreal. Like I remember when we were we were. Well, I, I do specifically remember planning. I knew we had no phase four, phase five, or whatever whatever it was. You know, like after we secure whatever, then what are we going to do? And I just very distinctly remember there being no clear plan, which we all know clearly at this point in time there was no really clear plan. But what do we do after we get there? You know, once we once we have Baghdad, what do we do? And, you know, it was, it was really surreal. It was just kind of surreal uh, sitting out there. And when we were on the border, right, when we were on the border, it was just kind of like, when's it going to happen? We kind of knew it was. But it is. It's like surreal, right? Because, I mean, most of us at that point had grown up just watching war movies, right? we just grown up watching war movies. And those things, you know, Platoon, Full Metal Jacket, Hamburger Hill, Apocalypse Now, all these things. You know, the TV show Tour of Duty, for any of those you remember that show. You know, these are all the things you have in mind. And then the next thing you know, you know, rockets are going off and you're, you know, you're crossing, you know, you're crossing the border into, you know, another country. Really just kind of have no idea what's what to expect. But at the same at the same time, feeling proud because of what you're, you know, what you're doing. Again, now it's probably another whole discussion of the feelings of Iraq then versus the feelings of Iraq now. Um but yeah, it's it's one of those. You're just kind of like, holy, holy shit, man! We're getting ready to invade a country here. What's it? I mean, what's it like when you start to get close to the city and you start to see and feel combat for the first time live for you? Yeah, you know. So it's interesting. At, at that point, I was um, I was in the assault CP, so I was I was up behind the lead battalion, mm-hmm. and uh, I mean, I was really kind of fortunate, I guess, in a way, because I had a lot of control with the battalion commanders in terms of being able to the track and the movement because I was way ahead of the talk. I was right behind the lead battalion. And, you know, for the most part, yeah, it's, I guess it's, it's, it's surreal trying to just think about it. Cause you're so engrossed in just doing your job and, and, and being aware of what's going on. And we had a lot of success. If I recall, like the unit didn't have their first casualty until we got to the North side of Baghdad. Uh, obviously we were, I think we were further north when the convoy got ambushed in, uh, I can't remember the name of the, of the city, but it's, you know, when you start hearing about casualties, then it becomes, it starts becoming real. Like, holy crap, this can, you know, anything can happen to anybody at any given time. Or when we stop them, we're literally just in the desert hanging out. Yeah, it's always that seminal moment, whether it's the first bullet whizzes by your head or the first report that somebody actually got hit and or killed, where... Um, you, you start to realize it's not simulation. It's not a video game. It's not training. Um, this is 
life and death, literally. Uh, and any moment, any decision could could have a, a, a major impact on that. And so, uh, yeah, we're not in, we're not invincible. Right? No. Like you, like holy crap, we're not. You know, we're not invincible. And uh, you know, some of the company commanders were you know were really good friends of mine uh, that were out there. And of course, you also have that guilty feeling, right? Like you're in the salt CP and your your buddies and everybody else is out in the direct line, and you're like, man, once again. You know, because we all have that. I want to prove myself. I want to prove myself. Sure. And, yeah. you know, that that crazy guilt we feel if we're not doing certain things uh, in our lives. But it was. Yeah, it was just that was crazy. That was just a crazy first few months knowing, you know, uh, once we got to Baghdad, how we used to get to the green zone to like literally just seeing how people change right from celebrating things to not celebrating things. Yeah. How long were you there for that first time? I mean, you do the invasion in March, obviously. Yeah, I did the invasion in March. So we left. We came back in July, I guess, of that year. July of that, July of um, oh, 03. And, you know, Mark, the one thing I always remember, it'll stick with me till like dad, the dad died. When we when we switched, right, when we went from, like, combat operations to... Sustainment, if you will. Yeah, whatever you want to call it, sustainment. And, you know, Dave, you're now the education guy. Go do education stuff. I'm like, what? You want me to do what? Like we were just doing combat operations. Now we flipped. I remember a, a, an NGO came down and a Iraq a cab driver, Iraqi cab driver, dropped her off and she went in and I was talking to him. And I was just curious. Just, we were about three months in at this point. We were there maybe three months. And I just remember talking to him and I was like, hey, so what do you think about, you know, this? What do you think about Saddam being gone? And, you know, all those talks about celebrating that it was true when we were first there. I mean, it was, thank you, Mr. Bush, America's the best. And I asked him and he goes, no, we're happy you got Saddam out of power. But if you are still here in three more months, we are going to try to kill you all too. I, okay. Plain as day. I mean, he was like, thankful. He's like, but if you're here, we're going to try to kill you in about three months. Yeah. And, I wish I wish you would have said that to somebody in the government. That might have been useful information for us to have. Oh, do you think they would have listened? <laughs> no, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, at least we would have had a place to lay blame. You know, uh, yeah, yeah, twenty years exactly. later. Exactly. Uh, you know, still looking for that. Uh, you got to blame somebody, right? Uh, but yeah. so you get back home, um, and then once you get back, are you off to Ranger Regiment? No. So when I get back, then I take command, right? So then I take command in Third ID. Okay. And that was probably one of the most tumultuous years. So the day I took command, um, we had a soldier that went, that was missing. Uh, Specialist Davis had a soldier was missing. And so, you know, I, I took command that day. He was failure to report, then listed AWOL and come to find out, you know, in November that year, right. Cause we just assumed he was AWOL uh, November that year found out that he was actually killed uh, by I think it was three other soldiers in the company. Oh, wow. Yeah, down in, down at Fort Benning. Um, so one of them was talking about it, you know, bragging about it. And one of the young private heard it and brought it to me and my first sergeant's attention. Reported to the MPs or CID and, you know, CID went out and found the remains. Um, and it was just it was just a tough it was a, just a tough 12 months because, I mean, I was talking to CID probably more than my, you know, than my commander. They were there every day you know, talking to everybody in the unit, trying to figure out what, uh, what happened. It was just one of those things, like, that's what you don't think is going to happen when you take a company, uh, command for yeah. the, you know, the very first time. 
But outside that, I mean, you know, outside of that, it was great because I was able to take some of the lessons from third battalion into the mechanized world. Uh, you know, we can start introducing shoot house uh, stuff, close quarters, combat, right? Demo, you know, great friend of mine that I work with now, Vern Tubbs. You know, we met, you know, uh, during the invasion, we served together. Uh, so that connection came on. It was just, it was just tough, right? I mean, at 12 months, I was putting my pack to go back to, uh, to Ranger Regiment. Which is interesting because, you know, um, while you're in the Ranger Regiment, um, you deploy four more times to Iraq, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's, yeah, for 1st Battalion, that's, yeah, that's correct. Okay. At some point in time, are you asking, uh, aren't I ever supposed to be in Afghanistan or you didn't care? Yeah, I think at that point I probably didn't really care, right? Because there's Afghanistan, a, it kind of... There's enough combat right. to go around. <laughs> that's right. Like, so in, in Iraq, everything was, at that yeah, point, everything, you know, the, the tide started shifting to to Iraq. And my first two, you know, my first two trips there were in, uh, were in Mosul. Um, you know, so I spent two in Mosul and two in, two in Ramadi, uh, two in Ramadi were the most dynamic because then I was a Ranger company commander at that point, you know, at that point in time. Okay. Uh, but yeah, it was, I hadn't really thought about Afghanistan. I never thought I would even see Afghanistan, uh, at that point in time because Afghanistan was kind of the, you know, the sideshow. Everything had chilled. I mean, honestly, yeah. by, by yeah. the time Iraq kicked off, Afghanistan was like less dangerous than Iraq was. And I was there in 05 and 06 preceding the surge. Uh, and, you know, when Fallujah Ramadi were the most, that and Sadr City were the most dangerous places in the entire country. Um, yeah, Crazy Ramadi, whoever those dudes, two guys were that made that video, you know, Crazy Ramadi, bombs under the yep. street, you know, <laughs> that's what it was like. So as you get more of a taste for combat here, um, and, and I guess taste is the wrong word, as, as your combat experience grows, you know, is there any sense about you that one is like, uh, I'm going to die at some point if I keep doing this, or two, um, to what end are we doing this? Are we actually making a difference? Are we actually making an impact? And you, 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 I mean, I don't know how many guys you may have lost to casualties, injuries, and, and, and KIAs or whatever, but you know, at some point in time, that stuff, if it is happening at a regular basis, has got to at least weigh on you a little bit, no? Yeah, it is. And, you know, fortunately, uh, when I was in company command, you know, so at that point, I was still young enough, right? So I was... I was still kind of all, you know, I'm going to say all in, but I'm still like, hey, this is this is the mission. We're going to go get these, you know, go get these bad guys. And, you know, fortunately in company command, um, Alpha Company, 1st Ranger Battalion, we had wounded rangers, did not lose anybody, which, um, you know, of course, I'm, I'm massively thankful for. And it, at that point, though, I, I hadn't really thought about, it wasn't really until 2000 and, 10 maybe when I was in Af- when I was in Afghanistan and the job I held there that I started to really start wondering what 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 exactly are we like what what is the end state here mm-hmm. you know is this is is what we're doing in the end of this really going to make a difference like in Afghanistan the way Afghanistan is when I was there in 2010 I could have predicted exactly what happened with the withdrawal really that, i mean that was my feeling right my feeling was i always felt personally like iraq had a chance right because iraq was a lot of great amazing history for the world right and they had some infrastructures they were 
largely, a, you know, really they had roads and electricity and plumbing. Let's start there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly right. Um, Afghanistan, I thought there's this is just not going to. It's not going to work. I mean, when I was in Kandahar and I guess it was 2010, you know, one of the, the strike forces came back. And I remember they they said specifically where they were. The Afghans thought they were Russian. Russians, like, I mean, that's kind of like, holy crap, like, we're, you know, it was just like, we're living in a... You're about 25 years behind there, pal. Yeah, 25 years behind, and it, you could just, that and you could just kind of see, right, the dynamics on how things were doing, like, the, the parallels between Afghanistan and Iraq, I just started seeing, like, hey, we're, the, the bigger issue is also Pakistan, we're not really addressing it, and, you know, it's like, hey, you go out and you're, you know, you're sending the boys out and they're going after someone that's, you know, here's the silhouette, Mm-hmm. of the guy here's the silhouette of mark and then the boys go back home and then we come back six months later and they're like all right now here's the picture of mark because we detained him and now he's released and now he's back doing the same thing and you start to just you know at least for me it was just you know the the thoughts of what is the what's the where are we going at the end of this if this yeah. is just kind of you know kind of the issue one of the hardest questions i ever got asked is you know i went into one of the common operator or the um the jocks for one of the companies and they were like hey what are, what are we doing you know and at this point i was the task force commander and i was like oh man that's a hard question right that was a tough question to answer and you quickly just regurgitate the company line uh, we're fighting the war i, on I actually i actually <laughs> didn't Mark. Oh, really? like that was um because i mean the boys are smart right like they know if you're if they're you're pulling wool over their heads uh or over their eyes and you know i, I walked in um, John Lancaster, he was the first sergeant was in there. A super smart ranger, a good good man right there. And they, you know, some of the, the, the some of the rangers just asked, and I, you know, I, I didn't tell the party line. I just said, hey, this is, you know, I don't know the exact words I said, but I wasn't trying to make it, you know, all chocolate rivers and gumdrops and ice cream cones. You know, it was like hey, this is, you know, what we can focus on is what we can control, and that's yep. you know taking care of ourselves. Uh, and I was told I, I had that same conversation with a major there. I've told this story before, but you know, she just told me small victories, win the ones you can, and that's yeah. it. And hopefully, a lot of small victories end up to a big victory. But you know, control what you can, and yep. you know, we we adjusted how we did some some missions to ensure, like, hey, let's do what we can and try to bring everybody home and, and do our do our job. Like, we all we can control is our our piece of the pie. While you were in Iraq, I mean, you, you, we talked a moment ago about casualties and everything else, but um, is, is there anyone that sticks out in particular with you? Yeah, well, there's a there's a couple, right? There's a couple a couple missions that really you know stick out. Um, one, you know, some that I got some really good lessons learned on is we you know we were out, uh, you know, we did a remain over day. I think it was the first remain over day that anybody had done, and we didn't really need to do it, right? We had gotten the guys we'd wanted. And um, they came, you know, helicopters came in, took the two guys out. And they're like, all right, you guys are going to stay. And I didn't really know why we were staying because there was no reason to really stay because we'd gotten what we want. I, I, I still felt it was, and I still feel it was kind of like just to prove a point. And, you know, I, I thought it was an unnecessary risk, right? We, did, we didn't, we weren't prepared. We, you know, we went out the night prior. It's like hot as hell in July. Uh, so by the time we get out, you know, now we're in the middle of, you know, this is not friendly air territory. This is like, so just like you said, this is 2006, seven. So Ramadi Fallujah area was just, you know, every, every mission 
the second rotation in Ramadi, like every night was kinetic. Like there was almost a firefight every single night. Yeah. Um, and you know, that's one where, man, I, I'm glad nobody got hurt. I mean, we ended up hunkering down and strong pointing in the building and we ended up getting ambushed and, uh, Man, that was scary. That that was probably the one time I was uh, one of the times I was like I was scared shitless uh, because I was dehydrated. You know, I made some decisions. You know, some people may think it was right. I don't think it was. Me and my first sergeant both were trying to look out for the boys. Um, so we had two platoons, and neither one of us wanted to send the other platoon out and take that risk. So we went. We, you know, we both went out. Uh, man, we came back. Man, it was so damn hot, uh, Mark. I mean, hell, we were probably close to having you know mass heat casualty. Uh, fortunately, nobody, you know, nobody got hurt. You know, now you can laugh about some of these things. You can laugh about some of these things, but there's, um, you know, there was one that was just amazingly fortunate that nobody, you know, they got some Rangers got wounded, uh, but God, how nobody, how none of them died is amazing. Cause one of them, uh, got hit like 11 times. The man, he got 11, oh. 11 times. I think it was 11 might be, might've been more. But I mean, he ended up getting hit in the arm. But you could see the the rounds that hit his his rifle went through his cargo pants. Um, one on the back, like right on the back of the helmet. You know, the, just that little lip, that little lip hit there. Um, uh, Ranger Floyd lost, uh, you know, part of one of his fingers, and it's uh, you know that's when you're just like, holy crap, that was, you know, that was that was that was fortunate. Um, at what point in time uh, after these first, you know, five deployments to Iraq, um, is there a point in time where you're starting to think I- I've done enough, or do you still have that same sort of piss and vinegar that I just wanted to complete Ranger School kind of deal? No, I was still all in, right? I mean, that after after my last deployment in First Battalion, I went to the uh, intermediate level education alley at, at Leavenworth, and yep. I was smoked. I mean, I was tired by that point. Because, you know, the, the, well, the, for those that don't, the rotation was three or four months away, back six or seven, but you're training to go again. Right. So then when I got to ILE, like, I didn't want to do anything. Like, I just, I didn't want to be involved in anything. I just wanted to go to class. I didn't want to try to get my master's in. I just wanted to get to class. It wasn't until 2010, Mark, where, I, you know, at this point I had missed one or two Christmases already. And I think it was actually the odd thing of all of it. it was my last one, my last deployment when I was a task force commander in Afghanistan. Uh, I remember having a conversation with my good buddy, Jeff Teagues, and we were talking about some of this and I was starting, I was running thin at that point. I was like, I just don't know how long I can, I can do this. Uh, missing back to back Christmases, missing my kids you know, and the interesting thing is when I left there, I was we were I was scheduled to go to Fort Bragg, and that's when I was going to then talk to my then wife uh, Susan about, hey, I don't know if I can keep doing this. Never really had that conversation with her beforehand. We never got to that conversation, right? So I was reaching my limit; she kind of reached her limit. Um, but it's it's funny it kind of coincided with that's where I was just starting to, you know, for me personally the. The grind was the grind was getting you know it was kind of getting to me at that point because you know we compartmentalize the hell out of stuff. Mark. Sure, no, and again, I, I do want to address it when you ended up taking over at, at JSOC, a Joint uh, Special Operations Command, um, and the task force there in Afghanistan because you know once you get there, 
um, and, and you're in 2008, uh, you know, things are starting to actually pick back up in 2008, 2009, 2010, right? Like Afghanistan is starting to heat up again. Um, difference between Iraq combat and Afghanistan combat is pretty dynamic uh, for those who are not military members and, and haven't been to both. But what, what stood out to, to it about you the most? Well, so, you know, the, my first one over there, I was a operations officer in Kandahar. And the second one, uh, I was a task force commander in, in Kalst. And that was, yeah, it was definitely different, right? Like you weren't, you weren't driving anywhere. You were flying everywhere. Uh, and for me personally, like that was the most stressful deployment I probably had. Uh, because I had a lot more people I was responsible for uh, in sending out. And for me, it was a lot of no sleep. Um, that, I mean, I was stressed the hell out on that one, Mark, because I, I felt even a larger responsibility because I had so many people. And I was a I was a major, and all the other commanders were, you know, other sister service special operations unit, you know, O5s, lieutenant colonels. Uh, I mean, it was an honor, but I just, you know, I, I felt a lot of pressure again to just do the right thing, bring everybody home. And um, were, were you in coast in 2009 into 2010? Yeah, I think it would have been 2010 into 11. That Christmas uh, was when I was in Kaos. The only reason I ask is because that was the New Year's Eve where the bombing happened and all the CIA agents were, were killed at Camp Chapman. Yeah, I think I was in I think I was in Kandahar for that one. Okay. It was in Kandahar for that. Because that when was that one, Mark? I think it was December in December thirty first, two thousand nine. It was, if I recall correctly. Nine to ten. Yeah, it's terrible when they get that many. It's like I just know I missed two Christmases, and I think it was ten and eleven, or no, it was nine and ten, because eleven is when I left. Yeah, so that's yes, I would have been in Kandahar uh, during that time frame. Hold on, I just want to check, double check the uh, the the date that that had happened. Um, and again, yeah, I think, it, or maybe it was no, maybe it was 2010. It was uh, New Year's Eve 2010 uh, into 2011. Um, and I mean, I, I, God, and I remember, man, like, you know, at that time, some of the rules of engagement changed drastically from when I was a company commander to now the, you know, the way the the guys had to operate. And I just remember, man, I, how difficult that must have been for them, you know, because it was. Far more restrictive than when I was a, a ranger company commander. Yeah, no, and and again, you know, it, it, it nonstop never changes, right? Um, so when you say you're getting wiped out by the end of this thing, um, are you are you done with the deployment combat phase, but still want to stay in, or are you actually still con- you contemplating getting out altogether at this point? No, I was I was at that point. In- I wasn't really sure, right? Like I really wasn't sure what I was going to do. And it was kind of one of those, I was, I was almost prepping to have that discussion with, with Susan. Um, Cause I never really had that discussion with anybody. Like, and then of course, how do you feel about that? Right. Cause part of it is like, man, you're man, you feel bad for saying that. Cause my mindset was operations, 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 operations. Right. I didn't, I had my own views and thoughts for anybody that went somewhere else other than operations. Right. So from O2, I was always in an operational unit. Um, so 02 to 11, it was either third ID, then first Ranger Battalion, one, 10 months at school, then back at second uh, Ranger Battalion, doing the deployment cycle again. Uh, so I didn't, I didn't really know, Mark. I just didn't know if I could do the same stuff. But then once I got divorced, like, then that shifted everything. Like, that just, 
that shifted the entire paradigm completely. Right. Um, when and now I know you end up going to the old guard as, as your final assignment. Um, was leaving the Ranger Regiment and that whole lifestyle or that whole sort of mentality of the military was that a difficult choice for you? It was at first, but it, it wasn't right away, right? So after I after I left Second Ranger Battalion, I was supposed to go to Fort Bragg in JSOC headquarters. Okay, uh, but because of the divorce that I was now going through, I ended up as the JSOC liaison in the Pentagon because I had, you know, great, great leaders that took care of me, you know, General Thomas, Tony Thomas, General Eric Carrillo, General Rich Clark, like these guys yeah. took care of me. They're like, Hey, we'll find a spot with you in, in, uh, in JSOC up in, in DC. So that's how I ended up back in Maryland. Uh, so I could be around my kids. So, you know, the fascinating thing, though, Mark, is like that was crazy difficult, but it was one of the most educational experiences I ever had. Yeah. Uh, I mean, anybody who's worked in the Pentagon gets a whole different view of the Department of Defense than anybody who just wore a uniform, right? There's there's a whole different level of beast and animal that that is. And I, I full never had the opportunity. And, and honestly, you know, even now as an 06, like if they have offered me a job up there, I would – I don't know if I can take it. I feel like I've I've experienced too much and I've seen too much of the sour side of things for me to be able to walk in there. Um, and we talked a little bit about this before we started recording. You know, play the game um, to the level that needs to be played to be effective. Yeah, it was. I mean, for me, it was intriguing because you know I had spent my entire time in regiment, kind of at the battalion level, so my my scope was like this. Right. Then I got in the Pentagon, and the aperture was like this. And you're like, holy crap. You know, there's a lot of things going on in the world, particularly within the special operations world that I didn't yeah. really have any idea about. So it was interesting, right? I mean, it was fascinating. I didn't mind it because I got to be around a whole bunch of different people on the joint staff, the policy side. But then it's like at the end of the third year, you know, I'd taken no vacation the first two years because I was the only guy. And I, I used to laugh like when we were on like the National Mission Force, I got called into the Pentagon more when I was the JSOC L&O. Than I ever did when I was like on the, you know, we were on alert in a Ranger Regiment. I mean, so much so my kids had a ready bag, you know, and they could see, they could see on the TV, like the number would come up on the TV that, cause it would get, I get a text, I get a phone call, my cell phone would ring, you know, the kids and I'd be running off into the Pentagon at like two in the morning. But we had some great memories, you know. One of the kids always played football in the parking lot. Uh, and then the other one got to play catch, cause I have two kids, son and daughter, Michael and Allison. Whoever played catch in the parking lot, the other one was playing catch to the office, uh, you know, down the hallways of the Pentagon. So, you know, at least we got some some good memories out of it. But it was uh, by the time I left there three years later, I was like, it was great to see behind the curtain. But, man, I, I don't want to see behind the curtain anymore. Yeah, uh, that, that, that's the whole sausage principle, right? Like, uh, I don't need to know how it's made. Um, let's just make it taste good. And uh, sometimes seeing how the whole thing is made um, can definitely – alter your view of things. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, right, just go live on a mountain. It's one, of, it's one of those things where I think, you know, you, you talk before about like, when you talk with your, your soldier about what are we doing? Like, what is the goal here? And, and you're trying to answer that question. And then you get behind the curtain and you start to get some of the answers to those questions. And they're not as existential as you'd like them to be. They're really not right. Like, yeah. There, there is, there is a, a lot more. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong in this. 
But it feels like there's a lot more, you know, dart in the dark throwing to a certain extent. That's such a disconnect with the ground and what goes on. That there is a sense of how are you literally making this decision for what is going to happen here when you are completely unaware of the situation here? Because I've lived it. I've been there. I know what it's like. And I can tell you never have because of the things that you're saying and how you're reacting. You know, you're right. I mean, there are some things, you know, that I would I would end up briefing and there was questions that would sometimes be asked, you know, that would be asked. And, you know, my thought was, I, I have no idea why you're asking this question. Like there are layers of leadership. Before it gets to that point, I am confident that someone is is worried about that. Like, shouldn't this be a bigger? Shouldn't you be asking bigger questions than than this specifically? Yeah. Um, and it was you know frustrating, but you had to answer the questions right because policy is going to prove something. So you you got to get the answer to the question. But sometimes it wouldn't happen, and I, you know I always said, you know. Sometimes no is not the answer. It's like let's just continue to throw sand in the in the wheel, and it'll eventually it'll stop without ever having to say no, mm-hmm. right? So it's kind of like I oh, well, we really didn't say no. We just never got to the answer, um, and the amount of time it would take for some decisions to be made. And I mean, we had a whiteboard on the on the wall, and when one of my buddies came in, Dan Ferris, same guy I mentioned before, he came in. I remember we had all these things on the board. And he would want to get them done. I'm like, Dan, you see some of these things? They've been here for like six months. They're going to be here when I leave and you're still here. And they would be, <laughs> right? And they, they, would, they would still be there. And it's just, um, I mean, yeah, it's, it's amazing to see. But at the same time, you just kind of wonder. Sometimes you can you can get frustrated, right? It's a lot of respect for anybody who can manage, you know, stay in that world for so many years and, and run it. I'm glad there's people like that because I, I, couldn't, I couldn't do it for that long. Right. I couldn't do it for that long. So after uh, JSOC and the Pentagon, do you get told you're going to the old guard or you request it or how does that whole thing unfold? So, yeah, I mean, I, I requested because it's, you know, and I, I remember talking to, uh, you know, one of my mentors, General Carrilla, about it because he was he was at JSOC at the time I was in the Pentagon. And, you know, at this point, like I, I went through a divorce as a kid myself. Mm-hmm. So now I'm at this point where. You know, decisions are a little bit easier, right? The decisions are a little bit easier. Like, I don't want to leave my kids. Um, I want command. I would love command, but I don't want to go. You know, if they said, hey, you know, you, you're going to go here, you know, I would have a decision of do I really want to leave my kids? And at that point, you know, nothing was going to be as relevant as the as the kids. And right. so I, I put, you know, at this point, it was 1st Battalion, 3rd Infantry. And, you know, it was interesting because throughout my military career, when you'd go to uh, HRC, you know, it was always like second commands and stuff. It was Ranger Regiment, Old Guard, Ranger Regiment, Old Guard. And I never thought I'd end up uh, at the Old Guard. But, man, I tell you what, what what a just an amazing assignment. I mean, I, I can just consider myself amazingly lucky to, to have served there. Why? It was like the biggest honor. So the battalion I commanded, 1st Battalion, uh, 3rd Infantry, was responsible for the military service funerals in Arlington for the Army. Also had the Presidential Salute Battery and then the Caisson Platoon, the horse-drawn that carries the the caskets. And I think it was just, you know, not knowing. I didn't know what I didn't know. I mean, it's an infantry unit, but it's largely focused, obviously, on uh, ceremonies and in Arlington National Cemetery. 
it's just an honor, right? I mean, it is just the most humbling thing. And it's, I think it's like you'd walk into the Arlington National Cemetery and there's just like this peace to it, right? There's no race, there's no religion, there's no politics, there's no right or wrong. It doesn't matter. It's like the mission's very clear, right? The mission is very clear. You know what you're doing. You'll, you're never going to talk to one of the family members outside of, uh, you know, rendering the honors when you present the flag. But you just know, right? It's like the, you know you're the last thing a family's going to see when they lay their loved ones to rest. And it's like the immediate feed, like you know for a fact what you're doing is make, is mattering to somebody. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I appreciate that point of view. I just don't know if I could do it. Like I don't, I don't know if I'm emotionally equipped to deal with people's loss over and over again. You know, like at a certain point when you've lost a lot, you feel like, how much more suffering do I have to look at? Did you? You never got emotionally overwhelmed by any of it. Well, no, I'm not going to say I never did, right? But you, you like you hot, you try to like bring it in. Like so, the the very first time I ever presented a flag. Now again, granted. I presented as much as I could as a commander, but not nearly as much as the company commanders and the, OI, the officers and non-commissioned officers. But I remember the first time I presented the flag, I was like, you know, don't screw this up and get the words out. Like, get the words out without, you know, like getting emotional and, and uh, stuttering. And then after a while, like, I just made it, a, a, I, for me, like, I wanted to make eye contact because I wanted them to know it's, it, you know, that's the only way you could kind of show an emotion and connection beyond just presenting the flag because you're, you know, things are very scripted on how you present things and do things. But like that connection of, hey, this is meaningful. And then, you know, any of the active duty ones were hard, uh, particularly, you know, I presented to the spouse and then three kids. That's hard because you're thinking about your own kids. Right. Obviously, uh, you know, and, you know, their their father is uh, is killed. It's just yeah, it was. Man, that was just a such an honorable honorable place. And then when we had uh, repatriations, you know, when they would find remains from World War II, and they would, you know, bring them by. You know, we they the remains were landed uh, Reagan National Airport, and a casket team would go out, and then they would bury, you know, the remains in Arlington. You're like, yeah, we're you know, no matter what, as much as you can, uh, someone's going to come, and you know, you're going to. You're going to be found, and you're going to be brought home, and you're going to be laid to rest. It's just a truly amazing place. Yeah, I mean, I again, all the credit in the world to you. I don't, uh, I don't know how you pulled it off. Um, did you ever end up having to bury somebody you knew? I I did not. Now there was um, um, Sergeant Major Wardell Turner. Um, he he was. Um, he was killed. So Wardell Turner was in basic training. He and I were based, went to basic training together. Uh, I used to call him bulldog, went to Towson university up in, um, Towson, up in Maryland. Maryland. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, we stayed in touch, but he's like one of those guys. I mean, he'd been in the army already when I went to basic training right now, you know, I got the records of dear John letter in basic training also. So he was, you know, he was, he was like my big brother that kind of carried me through, carried me through. And that was, um, you know, that was hard because he meant a lot to me, you know, because he was like a big brother, father figure in basic training because he was older. And, um, you know, he got killed as a sergeant major. And that, that, that was tough. You know, that was tough because, you know, his wife was there and he's, you know, when someone's like, you know, someone who's got that personal impact to you, 
um, you know, those are, those are hard ones. Those are hard ones. And I would, you know, I'd always try to go out and uh, my uncle's buried there. My grandfather's buried there. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's a, I, I think some of the hard, hard things were like around Memorial, you know, Memorial day sure. when, you, yeah. when you were out and, you know, you see spouses, parents, loved ones, um, you know, laying, laying there or sitting there at the graveside with cakes or birthday cakes or, you know, chairs, food, drinks, just. Is all this in Section 60 mostly? Yeah, most of it was yeah. in Section 60. And That's for those who don't know, Section 60 is where all the the GWAT, the Global War on Terror veterans are, are buried. Um, have you gone back a bunch since you've left that post? I mean, do you, do you go back often to visit or you don't go? No, I, I do because it's, you know, it's not too far from where I'm at. And, right. That's uh, why I asked. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate. It's probably kind of not the right word. Uh, but because my grand, you know, my, my grandparents uh, were buried there, I've got, uh, you know, I've got a pass. Ah, so, okay. you know, I can I can drive in. I can go to their, you know, I can go to their gravesite. I go to my uncle's gravesite, uh, who I just finally found his son uh, about three months ago. I've uh, been chasing him or trying to find him my entire life. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's still, and I, you know, anybody visits, I like to, I like to take people through cause I can give them a different perspective of the, of the cemetery than. than yeah. Cemetery. I mean, I, I, and I, I highly recommend this uh, to any, you know, veteran or whatever, if you've never done this, or even, even a civilian, you know, I, um, I've been to Arlington before, but I'm obviously not back up there all that often, but I, I go down to Fort Stewart a lot for training and, 3ID has right outside their main parade field. They have all these trees that they planted for everybody in 3ID uh, who was killed in action. And, you know, there's a pamphlet there you can walk through mm-hmm. and they, you know, again, with 3ID being the initial evasion uh, of Iraq, they they've certainly have shared their fair share of losses in the global war on terror. Um, but, you know, when I was in battalion command and we were doing some training down there, I carved out uh, uh, about two hours in the morning. Um, because I did this by myself first, but I, and I thought it was useful for my staff, but I carved out about two hours in the morning and I said, guys, we're going to go there and I just want you to walk around. I want you to walk around. I want you to read the names. I want you to read their stories. I want you to see the notes and the things that people have left by those trees. Um, and, and every time I go there, I still get emotional about it. Um, the new notes that are there, you know, little kids leaving something for their father, uh, Mm -hmm. a toy, you know, and everything. And you're like, this is a kid, it just, it overwhelms you, especially if you're a parent. You know, this is a kid who knows he's never going to see his dad again, but this is his, the way he plays with his dad. He or she plays with their dad is by leaving this little toy on this memorial tree. Um, and, and I think it's so important to to connect ourselves, not only with those who, who made the ultimate sacrifice, but um, with, with the bonds of service, you know, and, and understanding that, even in death, there's still a brotherhood and a sisterhood for all of us um, that we remain eternally connected by. Uh, and for me, at least, it, it's, it is a good compass recheck to remind myself that whatever you're doing in uniform, there's always a bigger picture involved that extends beyond you. Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. I think that's a great, it's a great thing. And, you know, if someone's not been there, they should. And you're right, reading the names and the stories, you know, we would get a list of everybody and it was always fascinating. Like you would, you would get a list of the funerals and you'd look and you'd see what, you know, it's like the history and you're like, holy crap, this one, this person from this World War II has got silver stars and purple hearts. And you're just like, holy crap. Like, you know, and the sad ones were occasionally there was one or two in which there was no, 
no family member. Yeah. You know, family member there. And that's, um, you know, those were, those are hard, but it, yeah, it's, it's just, it was truly just an honorable and humbling, uh, assignment. It almost felt like the, you know, I hadn't planned on retiring at that point, but it was like, it ended up being like the, almost was like the, the most surreal capstone to, to the military at that point in time. Yeah. So, uh, take me through, um, what do you call it? Uh, take me through that decision when you when you go to retire, and do you know what you want to do next? <laughs> well, so I, I changed command in June of 2016, and mm-hmm. you know, in 2014, I went on like my first uh, solo trip. Really, sounds crazy. Like in my 40s, I went to Zion National Park, and man, I was like, man, this is living. This is great. But mountains had always been calling me. Right, mountains always been calling me when I was out in. 275, never climb or near. Uh, so I was like, all right, you know, for a change of command. At this point, I was on orders for the National Defense University in D.C. So I went out to um, look for a mountain to climb, and I went out, and there was uh, – I looked up Mount Shasta, California. I changed command on – I think it was a Friday. It was the Thursday or Friday. Flew out to California, summited Mount Shasta the following week, and when I was out there, that just experience was – was very impactful in my life. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of the decision of, I came back, told my, my commander, uh, the next, the next week, Colonel, that was general. Now at the time, Colonel Johnny K Davis <laughs> was going to retire. And he's like, Dave, are you sure you're just not on like some emotional high from climbing the mountain? I'm like, well, I am, but like, you know, a good officer, I MDMP everything and did some pros and cons to make sure I took the emotion out of my decision-making. And, um, I made a decision. So the hardest part was deciding to retire. Uh, you know, I, I spent a lot of time talking to, you know, now General Carrillo about it. And then, then actually admitting it and accepting like, Hey, I've got kids going into high school there. You know, I'm not going to be willing to go anywhere away from them. Yeah. So, you know, it's kind of like, I can't give the army what the army needs and the army can't give me what I need anymore. Uh because at this point, my family was, you know, my kids were the most important thing. Sure. Uh, uh, to me. And so with that, uh, what's your your exit strategy? Much like uh, taking Baghdad. Did you know what was next? <laughs> <laughs> no. And just like much like Baghdad, no, I didn't know what was next, right? <laughs> no, absolutely no clue. I made a decision, um, and I had about a year, man. It was almost a wasted year because I just did not – you know, I'd spent all these times in operational units and doing something and doing something. I had about a year before I retired. And of course, this is the only time the the big army HRC ever that I really ever talked to. And actually, there's two times in my life that I ever really needed HRC that I, I'm sorry for anybody who's with HRC, right? The first time was as I was going through a divorce, I was doing my own work to see if I could get reassigned somewhere. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, well, we can send you down here. And it was like absolutely no help. Um, and then when I made the decision to retire, they tried to reach down in and send me out on the tasking for a year, my final year to like Afghanistan. And fortunately, the G3 and the CG for military district of Washington were like, hold on, time out. Like the reason he's making these decisions is exactly because of, you know, exactly because of this. But I was paralyzed, Mark, because I was so used to not to doing something, I, I almost felt guilty that I didn't have anything to do. So I was paralyzed with stress and anxiety. I was paralyzed with, with inaction. Yeah. Um, I went, you know, I went to a couple of really good nonprofits uh, during that time frame that really ended up helping me out, but I didn't really have a strategy. 
I really didn't have a strategy. Um, you know, it was the most important thing that I did during that time frame was understand my own personal values. Uh, because at that point, you know, it was the Army values. It was Ranger Creed. You sure. know, that's how I lived yeah. my life. But I'd never taken the time to say, okay, well, what are what are my own personal, you know, my personal values? And is that where the idea of working in the leadership field comes in? Yeah. And, it you know, it didn't even exist at the time. Like, I, I came on at the time. It was LDR uh, Growth Partners. They hired me on as a 1099 contractor. And this was around Hurricane Harvey. Okay. Uh, so I was going down with Team Rubicon to Hurricane Harvey. I got connected to uh, one of the original founders, J.D. Dolan, through Anne-Marie Craig, who was running the Commit Foundation, who I went through uh, after the Station Foundation. And she's like, hey, you ought to meet. So J.D. and I meet, and we're talking, and our values align, and they brought me on doing some Hurricane Harvey stuff. And then one of the partners uh, could not make a leadership event. Um, and that wasn't the main thing they did, right? They were doing uh, mergers, acquisitions, but because they were former military, they kept people kept asking them. Uh, so I went up and did an event. They're like, "Hey, do you want to run the leadership part?" I'm like, "Yeah, let's sure." Um, so I went from 1099 to W two, and then we acquired a, a small company in 2018. Then created LDR Leadership, uh, which I've been then running, and then became a co-owner of. And yeah, it's been it's been great because it's you know. I kind of took a shift. I left the military and we don't do any government work. Right. <laughs> um, you know, we don't do any government work and ran into a, and discovered a program that we've been able to build upon. That's, you know, largely based around the individual. Cause if you can get someone to understand, you know, emotional intelligence, self-awareness, communication, all this into a program of, you know, going into a company and say, look, here, here's a program on how you can change a culture, address performance, right? Not just say, hey, here's this grand idea, but hey, here's a program for you to to follow. And then we stay with you, right? We're there to help you out if you got questions on addressing performance or positive reinforcement. Just, um, it's been great, right? I mean, people would ask me what I wanted to do when I retired, and I said, I want to go to NASCAR races and climb mountains. And <laughs> people laugh. That's a good answer. But, but Mark, I'm climbing mountains in two weeks, and in February, I guess it was June of this year, I took my team down to Daytona. Awesome. And you know everybody, everybody got to drive. You know the cars uh, drive around the track. So it was. Uh, I was like, hmm. Somehow this, you know, this worked out uh, really well to be able to combine a lot of things that I enjoy. We touched on this a little bit earlier, but the good part and the bad part of the leadership industry, um, as it continues to grow, it's very young. Um, but again, there seems to be this whole. And and for me, this is where it gets dirty, right? Um, it's like you have these guys out here, these former Green Berets, Navy SEALs, Rangers, who um, get in touch with the right people, and all of a sudden their business is now, well, I'm going to go out there and hang out with professional athletes and make them carry a log together to teach them teamwork. And we sort of co-opted this that that is a business um, in a way to build and teach leadership um, and, and teamwork. Now, I fully believe 100% because being in the guard for a better part of my career – um, the civilian sector and working in it has a ton of holes in leadership, a ton. Um, there isn't a, a, a bigger sense of team. Many organizations lack it. Uh, many organizations lack the people to have the right, let's just call it a moral code or, or a bigger value system other than how do I put the most money in my pocket? How do I advance as fast as I can? Um, and so I think that there is room to educate some of those people on that. But I also think that there there are some groups out there that are, 
let's just call it not as honorable as others or, or have different goals than let's just say passing on some leadership traits that we have learned through combat, through other, through hard lessons and loss, um, they, they, that's not the goal that they're trying to pass on to them. It's, it's a, I don't know, the monetary value side of it feels a little bit icky to me. Tell me if I'm wrong. Yeah, and well, you know, and of course I'm, I'm biased, right, because sure. of what I do, but I'm biased in the fact that what I truly think makes us different is, you know, when I'm going to a client or one of my instructors are going to a client we're not talking about here's what we did in the military, right? Like we're talking about like, Hey, here's, here's a program, right? Here's a program to follow. And it's evidence-based. It's not, here's what I, I mean, very rarely do I even try to use military stories unless I have to. Right. Um, I can talk, you know, I can pull on some of those things, but to me and my instructors and my team for the company, it's important for us when we leave, we want to give you tangible tools to utilize that is also evidence-based, right? So like team building is great. You know, research clearly shows team building has an effect, but only to a certain extent, right? So we have that offering, but that's not the focus because at the end of the day, you've got to focus on a much bigger process, right? On what we're talking about, how do we address performance? How do we positively reinforce somebody? What is a plan? Like what is a plan to follow? How do you work on individual self-awareness, emotional intelligence, the key aspects of communication, all those things. And you're right, Mark. Like I, I, you know, my, the guys I work with, I have a very, I've always had a very hard time of even promoting, you know, I don't, when I left, it was like, I didn't want to just be retired Lieutenant Colonel Dave Taylor or Army Ranger. Right. I wanted I've got a lot of life left. So it was like well, another reason I wanted to go to Georgetown. It's I wanted to understand the science behind it. So when I was instructing or building a curriculum, it was an evidence based aspect. It wasn't just here's here's what I did in the army, because at a certain point, right, that you reach tracer burnout, per se, like stories from five, 10, 15 years ago. I mean, hell, at this point, we're talking about Ramadi. I mean, hell, that was like crap. 17, 17 years, ago, years ago. Yeah. 17 years ago. Yeah. You can relate to some of those stories, but for me, it's, you know, it's partnering with a company for a program. We've had some of our clients that have been on board 5, 10, 15, 20 years with the program. Um, and then we continue to build upon it because leadership aspects change, like different things change. People face different things. Uh, and we go about and we research it and we come back and say, hey, here's here's what research is saying and here's how we can apply it. Right. So, I mean, instructors that are law enforcement, um, lawyers, business owners, I mean, it's, it's a different thing. And you're right. Like that's where, you know, I'm with you on it. I think sometimes it can just be brought in. Someone's brought in because they are, they were this, this, or this. And just because you were this, this, or this, you know, the military does not have the cornerstone on leadership. Like I've run into amazing leaders in the in the corporate world and the electrical cooperative space that, you know, if you're running these organizations and you're running things, I mean, you, you don't you don't get there by being bad. And right. I think it's not luck. Yeah, it's not luck. And I think it's important for there's a lot of leadership lessons that I have taken from leaders that I have seen outside in the corporate world and run of these massive organizations. Um that I didn't see. And, and in some cases harder, right? In some cases yeah. harder because 
you know, it's like a double-edged sword. You know, if you're in an elite unit that's got an assessment and selection process and everybody wants to be there, that's, you know, it's in some ways maybe easier to lead. could be harder because everybody may think they got all the answers. But now when you're running an organization where the, the values and purpose may not, not all be aligned, it, it, you know, it can be it can be harder. Um, well, to, to that end, again, I mean, the, the, like you said, military, the military doesn't have the cornerstone on leadership. It, it's it, We didn't start the leadership business. Uh, we're very good at it. Um, mm-hmm. And like any organization, we have some people who are really bad at it. That said, you know, there are probably some things we probably can take from the civilian sector, especially inside those Pentagon realms, where it would make the, their philosophies would apply better at a macro level than ours do, right? Because uh, we are so conditioned that everything is written down for us and, and there's always a guideline. Uh, and if we stick to the guideline, we're never going to be too far off center of mass, right? Like that's kind of mm-hmm. the, the, the ideology behind the whole thing. But I've often found some of the best leaders – they don't. They don't worry about the manual. You know, they they use their brain. They're free thinkers. They're creative, uh, and they find solutions to complex complex problems that aren't written down in a book somewhere. Going, oh, okay, I got this right here. Yeah, let's just do, do it this way. You know, not everything. Not MDMP doesn't fix everything. It fixes a lot of things. CYA analysis, I think, is a, a useful tool in any organization. Course of action analysis is always worthwhile. Um, but that said. Uh, it doesn't have to be the end all be all. So I, I think there's a there's a solid mix there of both that that could be used. But again, you know, and this is anything against Navy SEALs or, or Green Berets or anything. But you know, like you said, having that title and walking into an NFL organization or a basketball NBA organization, and going, I can teach you something because I carried a log or a boat. That, yeah, um, yes and no, right? Like some of it feels just more for show than anything else. Yeah, and, and Mark, I mean, ideally, we're you know we're at the point now where we're talking to organizations. They don't even really know the background of me until they get to know me. It's like, hey, here's sure. what we do. Here's the company, and you know, I think there's also a thing on an intrinsic and ex- extrinsic motivator. Right? Like, there's nothing better than you go out and you're working with a, uh, a partner or a client. And they reach back out to you and they ask for some help on something you provided to them and they send you something back. It's like, hey, that that really helped me make a decision or have a conversation or do something like that. You can't put a price tag on that. That's what motivates you, right? Like you can't put a price tag on Mark, you sending me a message saying, hey, that that really made an impact. Uh, I was so nervous about doing this. But, you know, what you showed me and taught me made an impact like that. That's when you're like, that's why we do this, right? Like, that's the things that make yeah. you happy. Like, that's what warms you up inside. Like, yes, you know, I know, I know that was an impact on somebody, and that's, uh, you know, to me, those are those are the greatest things that you can you can get back when someone's like, hey, that was that was meaningful. I appreciate that. Biggest lesson from a leadership standpoint you've taken from your military career that you apply to your business now. So the biggest thing I, I like to take away is, you know, the, the same aspect of one being humble. But I think one thing that I try to to tell a lot is, you know, when you are the further up you move in the food chain, the more you become removed from reality. And if you can always take a step out and try to go see what either your soldiers are doing or at a corporate world, like when you're a CEO or an executive, get out and go, go down and see what they're doing. 
because, you know, at some point we were all that person. Like, I got a great idea if somebody would listen to me. And, uh, you know, I just remember when I was in the the old guard, like I, again, I didn't, st- I didn't stand in, I'd never done a funeral. I'd never ridden a horse. I'd never, you know, stood in a court on, never marched in an escort. It, so I went down and did it, right? I mean, I was scared shitless, Mark, because I was like, if I, if I screw this up, right, this is going to be bad. But by being down there with them, with the boys, mm-hmm. I could learn things, right? And, you know, there was a specific soldier that changed how we did funerals because he kind of took the idea, but I was there with him. And when you see those things, when you're in that position, you can, you know, you can really go out and make a difference. And I think you just got to be humble and you got to be, you got to listen, you know, you think humility. I mean, I've I've always, it was, I don't know, for me, it was always hard to stand up in front and talk to the, you know, talk to whatever formation because I never, you know, never thought, you know, sometimes I was in more, more in all of them, right. More in all of, of these guys, you know, closing with and destroying or being on the front line. Right. right. Uh, so it was like, sometimes it was like, I don't, I don't know if I should, if I, if I've earned the right, or if I deserve the right to stand in to stand in front of you. And I think just being authentic, right. I think you, you go out and you be who you are. Don't try to be something you're not just be who you are, be authentic. And I think people will appreciate, you know, if you're, if you, who you, you know, if you show who you are, people will, will be appreciative of it. Absolutely. Great final words, man. Uh, listen, 24 plus years of a, of, a, of a long, distinguished military career and um, more combat than people want to shake a stick at. That's for darn sure. Uh, but, you know, I always tell people sometimes you make a bigger impact in the in the post-military career than you do during your military career. Now, I know it's hard to top uh, what you accomplished in the Ranger Regiment and at JSOC and everything beyond, especially you know, in the old guard, um, because, you know, when you started speaking about that, the, the passion in your voice really comes through. You know, it's one of those things where uh, I, I can sense the amount of pride you took in that job. And um, anytime you have a direct impact on any life, you know, that's something important that stays with you. And I think that that is uh, that's something to be to be cherished. And, and it's very unique because not everybody recognizes those moments. And you did. And I think that's very astute of you uh, and you're very aware of it. So, um you know, again, congratulations on all your success, and certainly, uh, I, I continued success with LDR Leadership. And again, LDRLeadership.com uh, is where you guys can go. Some final thoughts here, uh, Dave, for you. You know, you look back on 24 years. Anything you would do different? You know, that's that's one of those questions. Do you do something different, or is what you did a product of who you are now? Right, and do you make those same? Am I who I am now if I didn't experience all those things? I mean, sure, there are things I wish I knew now that I could go back and do. You know, I think the, you know, the biggest thing that always stuck with me is I just never wanted to let, I never wanted to let the the soldiers or rangers down. Like it was, I just wanted to bring them home and try to do, you know, do right by him, right by them. And I think that's one of those, you know, as a leader, you are far less in the kinetic action than they are. And so all you can do is control as much to give them the, the resources and tools. And, you know, for me, it's always, I just hope, you know, I hope I did them well is, is really one of those things that, you know, you, it's kind of one of those, you love that you love them like, like kids, right? Like you just, you love them like kids. And, yeah, you know, I don't know if I would, I don't know if I'd change anything, maybe do some things differently, but um, enjoyed it. It was a, a, a great profession, right? The profession of arms and the, the brotherhood of arms is an amazing profession. 
uh, with an amazing uh, an amazing mission. Cer- certainly is. Uh, and, and I'm glad you're navigating retirement well because uh, I keep telling people, you know, I, I've been in uniform more of my life than I've been out of it. Um, <laughs> you know, when you think about it, right? Um, and so I don't know life without putting on a uniform at some point in time. It's a little scary and a little daunting uh, to think of a day where I don't have to put that uniform on at any point in time. So uh, I'll, I'll, I'll call you when it's time for some advice otherwise. <laughs> yeah, it's still, it's a lot of up and downs, right? Some days, it, well, you know, uh, Mark, it was, it was five years ago, two days ago that I actually hung up the uniform, August 1st. Wow. Five years. It's hard to believe. It goes by quick, just as quick. Well, that's because you have kids, right? Everything with kids goes by as quick because it's not your life. Uh, your, your, yeah, your, well, your pain goes by slow. Their joy goes by quick. There's a big difference. Yeah, well, they're both in college right. now, so that now it's on like another transition. Right, what exactly. do I do? Empty nest in life, right? Yeah. Well, listen, uh, and you guys can find Dave on LinkedIn if you want to hook up with him for uh, for other services uh, with LDR leadership as well. Listen, I appreciate your candor and your honesty and certainly sharing your story with us. Uh, it's been fantastic talking to you. Uh, continued success with LDR leadership and in your personal life, and uh, we certainly wish you the best, brother. Thanks, Mark. Appreciate what you're doing, man. Dave Taylor, thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. You've been listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Oh,